I trust that the Lord's banner over us this morning is love. And I invite your attention this morning to John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16, one of the most popular verses in all the, um, I can say world. I mean, you can't go to a football game without seeing it plastered in the end zone. John 3.16. Well, we'd like to continue on this morning in a, uh, in a subject that we've started some time ago in reference to the new birth, but we mentioned this the last time we were at it, and uh, briefly, but want to concentrate on verse 16. So with the Bible, let's read 15, 16, and 17 together this morning. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. May God bless the reading of these scriptures. We are living in a great period of time in church history because we can look back and see it finalized. The work has been accomplished. The work of redemption is finished. Our forefathers from the Old Testament had a much more obscure view and... We're very blessed to be in the position we are now, not only to see the things that were obscure, made uh, seeable, understandable, perceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, but we can also see the historical aspect of it, Jesus having been born, lived, ultimately died, and according to tradition, he rose again on the third day and ascended on high. And according to the scriptures, we understand that he continues to live to make intercession on our behalf. So from that perspective, we're very, very content this morning in living as New Testament Christians. The canon is complete. There needs to be no new additional revelation. The word is final. And what we have, it's... it's it's amazing. It's amazing what we have. We have the scriptures to teach us. The plainness of the New Testament. Can you get any more clear than this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what I mean by the clarity of the New Testament. It lays out in uncertain, excuse me, in certain terms, the work of Christ, what he has done for us in so plain language that we really can't, we need help to misunderstand it. And that's the great difference that we find. So this morning, what I would like to do is talk a little bit about some main points here in verse 16. Number one, the love of God. Number two, I want you to notice the fact that it's the Son, the only begotten Son. And I also want you to notice the word world, for God so loved the world. And then I also want you to notice the word believe. I want to talk a little bit also about believe, believe it, and uh, the importance of what, 
that means in the child of God's life. How important is that? And then, of course, with that belief comes with um, wonderful promises that are given to each one of God's children. Uh, Everlasting life. That's a tremendous promise. I heard a story once about uh, Charles Stanley. Somebody came to him and very afflicted, very concerned about the troubles and their concerns in life. And uh, basically, Stanley's response was this. God gave you eternal life. What more do you want? And when the young man heard that, he put it to heart and said, well, I guess you're right, and went off in his merry little way. Everything that we under uh, experience and go through in life, uh, we want to see it through the perspective of the promises of God and what he has given us. Now, in addition to some of these uh, words that I want to highlight this morning, it is something to do with our perspective. And, uh, you know, we could pull out a big fancy word that they mention once in a while about hermeneutics, but I would rather just say it this way, that there's a, a certain perspective that we look through, a filter, if you will, and understand what the words of the Bible mean. And uh, there's two primary perspectives that uh, we're faced today among the majority of Christian churches. We can extend that to be more, but mainly there's two. And that is how we view the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and the promises given there in reference to their fulfillment. And this is very important. And you, you will see as we go through some of these verses that I have on my mind this morning about the perspective that we have uh, as primitive Baptists, if you will, as we perceive what the Bible to teach. And I, 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 that's the most important thing. What does the Bible teach concerning these great topics? How do we recognize and understand some of these texts in the Old Testament? And so I hope to do some of that as well. But I think in the first place, we can underscore uh, a most wonderful theme here that's presented to Nicodemus by the Lord himself, and that is the love of God. The love of God. For God so loved the world. The love of God. You know, the world has a problem with sin, just like the child of God does. But it handles it quite differently. It's, uh, it doesn't know how to handle it, as a matter of fact. We can see it written all over the pages of the print nowadays. What's going on on the Internet? What's going on in Washington? What's go- going on in the world of politics? Uh, they have their problems, don't they? They recognize that they make mistakes, but they don't know how to deal with it. It's as if they don't have no way out, if you will. And whatever consequences of uh, misbehavior that they fall into, they fall prey to, um, there's no redemption, there's no restoration, there's no way out of their captivity. And that's the big distinction that we have. Christians understand that God loves them and he's provided for them. This love, then, is the source of of our blessings in Christ. And of course, this is coming now on the tail end of this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. And he has laid the groundwork of the new birth. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we've talked about that. We've talked about this new birth. Now, these verses are a continuation of that or an outflow or a consequence of the new birth. A man having been born again, quickened by the Spirit, 
now has a life. And we showed that there's a pivotal point in this text the last time we spoke from John chapter 3. And I believe it's very important to understand where now we have found ourselves in verses 15 through the end of the chapter, verses 21. And that pivotal point was pictured in an Old Testament symbolic uh, act when the fiery serpents bit the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And many of them died, but they needed healing. And Moses was instructed to mount a pole and place a serpent upon it, a brazen serpent, and those who beheld with their eyes, those who looked on that brazen serpent would be healed of the affliction. And of course, this is pivotal in this point because we said, we came to the conclusion that the spirit of burning and the spirit of judgment was an effect of the new birth in the heart. The affliction, the awareness, the understanding that a born-again child of God has concerning his own sin. And we pointed out that scripture there back in Ezekiel, that that really was a great um, explanation of Paul's understanding of sin in the heart, especially from Romans chapter 7 in the Old Testament. That is very pivotal in understanding the effects of the new birth. Now where we come at in verses 15 through the uh, verse 21 is the beauty of the assurance that we have by believing in Christ and being delivered from that sin and condemnation, from the spirit of burning. And of course, we remember uh, using Martin Luther as an example of someone who uh, was born from God, born of God, born by the spirit, a new birth, whose soul was afflicted, but ultimately found relief in the gospel of the Son of God. So, that's where we are today. And now we enter on to this idea that of, of love. And love, really, if we want to know what the source of the new birth is, we'd have to say that it's the love of God. It's God's love for us. Well, what is the love? And how do we understand that love? And uh, I don't know how we could ever understand it, quite frankly, other than looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody asks you uh, to explain the love of God, you cannot... You cannot, in your sentence, come to a period before mentioning the name of Jesus. Because the love of God is beheld and perceived in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, having said that, we can play around with this idea of the love of God and how great it is. And in this particular verse, we find a little word, God so love the world. He so loved it. Now, you can just look at that little word, so. Now, many people use it today. It's a conjunction. It's a word, a little word, that bridges a gap between two thoughts or two ideas. And it's usually placed in the middle of a sentence. Today, we hear it often in the beginning or at the end of a sentence. People start their sentences or their conversations with so, but that's not how it's used here. It's used as a conjunction. It takes a thought, an element of a statement, and it takes another thought that proceeds it, and it brings it together. It's almost like an equal, if you will. 
there's an equilibrium to this. In other words, God and his love brought together and it's spread abroad in the hearts of his people world over. For God so loved. But that little word so, to me, represents the size of God's love. Isn't that neat how he uses a little word to demonstrate just how big it is? Go down to the ocean, the seashore, and here's a good way to measure the ocean. Take a little thimble. Now, just how long would it take for us to measure the ocean with a thimble? That's about how long it would take you to understand and measure the depth of God's love for us with a thimble. It's impossible. In fact, we sing the song, number 486 in our book, about the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or men. Or, uh, it's, if we, if, if, let's, let's just read it. We sing it occasionally. 486. Could we with ink, let's just look at this, draw the picture the author is for us. If we with ink the ocean fill, and if the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. Here you can imagine a man, every stalk on earth a pen, if the sky was nothing but a parchment, and the ocean was filled with ink. To write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. Nor could this scroll contain the whole, those stretched from sky to sky. What an impossibility. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure this saints and angels song. So the love of God is, it's measured right here for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. It's immeasurable. This size is tremendous. I got a quote here from Charles Spurgeon. He said, when the great God, notice this, gave his son, he gave God himself. Notice the link. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we think about God's love, we think about giving. We think about sacrificial giving. We think about sacrifice. What did God give? When God gave us his son, he gave himself. For Jesus is not in his eternal nature less than God. When God gave God for us, he gave himself. What more could he give? He said God gave his all. He gave himself. So then how can we measure his love? Well, we measure it in the person and work of the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the way to understand God's love is how he takes a sinner vain and wild and makes him as a little child. He covers his sin by the sacrifice of his son. Paul would say something like, or excuse me, John would say something like the same in 1 John and 4.10, he said, here in his love, as if he's pointing to it, here in his love, he's pointing to the cross, he's pointing to the Lord Jesus. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation 
for us. Now, that word propitiation is a word that deals with what Christ did on the cross in appeasing God's wrath and justice in terms of our sin, so that we are accepted now in Him. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ was necessary in order for us as sinners to be accepted with God. His blood was shed on our behalf. And of course, that's a very powerful visual. But to measure the love of God is to measure it in the person and work of Christ. We can't capture it or understand it just in nature itself. Although we we see the love of God. The other day, I think it was Tuesday morning, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And we felt the warmth of the sun. And it was wonderful. And it is large. It's immense. It's immeasurable. Right? And I guess you could look at nature itself and see how God loved the world, provided for it the necessary ingredients, if you will, the timepieces, not only in the heavens, but all that which is covering the earth that provides food and nourishment. God is good. And we can see God's goodness and God's love for his creation, if you will, as the father, a faithful creator. But in particular, the way to really perceive, if you will, the love of God is seeing it in the death, in the death of his son. And so this is a tremendous love. It's immeasurable. Here's another quote that I have. When we deal about the love of God, the cause of who we are in Christ, the great reason why we're born again, listen to Octavius Winslow back in the 1800s. Love, he said, was the moving, controlling attribute in God's great expedient of saving sinners. Justice may have demanded it. Holiness may have required it. Wisdom may have planned it, and power may have executed it, but love originated the whole. It was the moving cause in the heart of God. Why God saved us in Christ, why God chose us, why God made this tremendous plan from eternity past, His infinite wisdom, we can say that it originated in God's love for His people. Now, we can get a finger on that. One of the neat things that God provides in the human atmosphere, if you will, is romantic love, right? I mean, there's a book in the Bible that pretty much depicts um, romantic love, like in the Song of Solomon. But there's visuals, like even the Apostle Paul said, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So he draws parallels between that romantic love that we may have for one And the love that Christ has for his people. But one illustration I like back in the Old Testament found in Genesis. Old Jacob, you know. Jacob went to the... His... his, uh, He he left home. There was a little bit of dissension there. So he's off to the north. And he comes into the land of Laban, his uncle. And you know there's a well. And who knows what Jacob might have thought when he was thinking about a well. I mean, after all, his father might have told him what he went through in meeting his bride. Well, here's Jacob, and uh, there's a well and a big stone on top of it. And, of course, you know, there was some conversation about just moving that stone. And, of course, Jacob wouldn't lift a single finger to do it. They'll take care of it to feed the camels and the sheep. You know, it took more than one man to move the stone. But when Rachel came. When Rachel came, it was a different story. Old Jacob manned up. You know, the adrenaline was flowing because he saw this beautiful young girl. 
And he took a hold of that stone and he moved it, you see, all by himself. See, romantic love has a way of drawing that adrenaline out of a young man and a young woman. We can feel the sacrifice. We can feel the, uh, the, the uh, interest and the, uh, the activity in our hearts towards someone that we have aspirations for. And, of course, you know the story about Jacob and how that uh, when he moved that big stone and he saw Rachel with the sheep of Laban, that he kissed her and he wept, the Bible says. And, of course, a little bit later on, after he met Laban, Laban said, sure, you can have Rachel as your wife if you serve me seven years. And the Bible says in one of the most romantic love comments in all the scriptures that he served Laban seven years for Rachel and it seemed as but a few days to him because his love for Rachel. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Many of us aspire to love someone and to be loved by that one that we have interest in. But it may not always be the case because even in the sin-cursed earth, even the most beautiful aspects and ideals that God has allowed his creatures to experience it escape us. But I've got a something special word for you this morning. Those of you who may not have that particular experience, God has loved you with all his heart. He loves you in his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because even in human love, there are problems, isn't there? And you can only see in the life of Jacob in a little, little while the contention that existed. Rachel was barren. Uh, there was great difficulty. There was turmoil. Even, you know, there was a lot going on in that family. Lots of upheaval. But nevertheless, it's an aspiration that we can look forward to. And it's a good one, too. It's a good one. And I believe among our young people, you should aspire uh, God's purpose for you in your life in a companion. And that's a wonderful prayer and supplication you can make known to God uh, on your own behalf. But having said that, if those dreams fall short and your aching heart yearns for something you might never have, I want you to know that you, dear sisters, should be chaste virgins for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, young men, use your strength and stamina and vigor to quit yourselves like men for the love of Christ in your life. God has commended his love toward you and that while you were yet sinners, he died for you. He gave himself. He gave his all for you. He didn't hold back in any way, shape, or form. In no degree did God's love was withheld. He gave himself entirely for you. You think about that the next time you're having difficulty in the loneliness of your own home. You think about how God loved you and gave himself for you. And you dedicate yourself to him. God loved you without restraint. Listen. When we think about the love of God, we think about His only begotten Son. Notice with me in 1 John chapter 5. I mean, this is a scripture that really is clear. We had mentioned it earlier. Um, that's the fourth chapter. He says, he, and notice the, 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 the capsule in which that love comes to us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God. Remember what we're talking about here. That the new birth is of God, but it is, it's evidenced through love. Okay? He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so he says also in the 16th verse of the previous chapter, hereby perceive we the love of God because what? He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There is that sacrificial, godly, agape love that we understand, we can see, we can perceive, we can visualize in our minds exactly what it meant when God commended his love toward us, that he laid down his life for us friends. Now, in today, among theological circles, they're, they're really getting away from the idea of an atonement and death. I mean, they've already removed a lot of the... Uh, words like blood in many of the modern versions because after all you know we don't want to make our young people feel victimized in any way we don't want the hardship of death and the gory scenes displayed on calvary really to be part of a good experience you know religion today when you leave a church ought to be an uplifting experience and so they really evangelicalism today fundamentalists today really are guilty of avoiding some of the real uh, evidences of the new birth, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they want to get away from the pure evidences of God's spirit of burning and judgment in the hearts of his people, and they're looking at the way of escape by perceiving and understanding the work that God has in the removal of sin and its consequences, and they're replacing it with parties atmosphere and and excitement so that you're riding high and then an experience today a theatrical experience today in a church service is really the net result is that you feel good and that when you leave you feel good you're riding high and hopefully you come back the following week and you get another fix to keep you going so they got this this is this revolving door but in terms of answering the need of a sinner who feels captivated and in bondage, there's no release, there's no removal, there's no freedom, you see, because they're removing the idea of the purpose of atonement, you see. Those themes are very difficult to, 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 to accept in the world. But anyway, let's move on. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And by the word, the word begotten shouldn't in any way... Uh, leads you to think any other than that Jesus was God's only son in terms of his of who he was. Now we are sons and daughters of God. We're born again and we're part of his family. But in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is God's only son. He's a special son. In fact, the Greek word there that we read the word uh, the English word begotten simply simply means soul, only. He's God's precious son. He stands apart from all of God's creation. And that's the only way in which we should look at that word begotten. The Lord Jesus Christ was the son from heaven. He was the word who was in the beginning with God, who was God. And Jesus, of course, um, God was in the great incarnation he became flesh and he dwelt amongst men. He was born of a virgin. And this is the mystery of the great incarnation. 
But of course, if we read about that birth in places in the Old Testament, like Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, we see that he's the ancient of days. That he, it was the prophet emphasized the eternality of that one that came forth from Bethlehem. That he was from everlasting, you see. However difficult it may be for us to understand the miracle of the great incarnation. It's amazing Christmas is over, but it drops off like a cliff up to that point. That's all we hear, and then it's gone. But in the Bible, that's not the case. The story of the birth of Christ continues on. You know, anyway. I want to look at this word world. Because remember I had mentioned our perspective in terms of biblical hermeneutics and understanding and valuing what the scriptures say. And I've got to spend some time on this, really, to understand this. Now, one of the neatest things I experienced just recently was some comments by Brother Jensen after the, uh, he was baptized. If you remember, you know, he had um, Brother Joshua and uh, also Brother Danny was with him. And he made mention of something that, to me, was like Manny Machado hitting a ball out of the park. It was a real home run uh, in my heart. And that was that he recognized the ethnicity of, who, of everybody up here, that, that they were all different. And that's the emphasis of what the scripture here refers to as God so loved the world, that God is not limited by ethnicity in any way, shape, or form. And this is a tremendous emphasis in the New Testament that we find, even in these chapters. Remember now, the gospel goes out uh, from Judea and it goes to the Jew first. But what happens? Also to the Greek, right? Last week, Brother Asa was talking to us out of the book of Acts, chapter 1, about how the disciples would be Jesus' witnesses. He said, where? In Judea? Where else? In Samaria? Where else? In the uttermost parts of the world. You see the progression to the Jew first and also to the Greek? See how it goes out? At one time, the Lord refrained or restrained his disciples from taking the gospel beyond the land of Palestine. He said, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why? Because that's God's way. That's God's purpose to the Jew first and then afterwards. Where are we today? Well, we fit into the uttermost parts of the world. Right here, the uttermost parts of the earth. Right here. That's where we fit today. But the point that I'm making is that the word world has reference to God's love that's displayed all over, all over. I was riding not long ago somewhere in Howard County, and I, you know, noticed a house, a little rambler, with a steeple. And as long as God borns again his people, you'll continue to see houses with steeples because man will worship his creator. And I like what Brother Asa said. You know, worship is a byproduct of humanity in and of itself outside the blessings of God, outside God's spiritual birth. That's why even corrupt men, unregenerate men, worship some form or another. Because they are creator creation that was designed to worship. Although this sin entered the world and ruined man, and therefore he's got all kinds of crazy ideas, but that steeple represented something. That steeple represented the fact that there are people in this world that have been born of God's Spirit that desire to worship Him. 
And there will continue to be things like that, those visuals that demonstrate God's presence in this world. But let's just think about this for a minute. Back in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 2, excuse me, 12 to verse 3, excuse me, there was a promise given to Abraham. And that promise is significant. And here's the perspective that I'm going to present to you. Remember, the promise that was given to Abraham said something like this, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, it didn't say, In thee shall Palestine, or the Hebrew nation, be blessed. But it did say that through that Hebrew nation, I'm going to bless the entire world. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And now, Paul tells us over in Ephesians chapter 3 that the whole family of God in heaven and earth is blessed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That basically is the fulfillment, if you will, of Abraham's promise. Now, the perspective is this, that we see the fulfillment of Abraham's promise that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. We see that fulfillment today played out through Christ. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 that when that promise was given to Abraham and he mentioned seed, Paul said that that seed refers to Christ in thee. That is, in Christ shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Although he said it to Abraham, he was a type or a picture of the Lord himself. Now, the other perspective of which I mentioned is something that is yet future. That when the promise was given to Abraham, that all the families of the earth will be blessed is something yet future. What's going on right now is an accident or parentheses, if you will, that something changed. Jesus came to, he was born, came to his people, and his people rejected him, and so God put a little space of time, a little parentheses, and said, okay, I'm going to set aside uh, my work that pertains to the Israel and to the Hebrews, and I'm going to focus on the Gentiles. And so we're living in this parenthetical gap right now, until God reinstitutes his work among the Hebrew nation, which is yet future. That's two different perspectives. It's either fulfilled now in Christ, or it's something yet future, kind of like put on hold. That God's blessings are put on hold until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. I'm quoting, I'm using my fingers here to show you what they perceive. So these are two major different perspectives. And uh, let's just think about that for a minute. How did the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or let's look at the Old Testament just for a minute. How did the Old Testament look at this word world? Now, I think the last time we were together and we spoke about this, we used a variety of Old Testament scriptures because God's talking through Christ to Nicodemus. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is talking, having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he's... He's saying to Nicodemus, you didn't receive our testimony. You didn't receive our witness. And he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, Nicodemus, you should have known what they said. Now, having said that, it comes with a little caveat. And that is that the work, the promise given to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, 
was kind of like couched in obscurity. In other words, mystery. It wasn't all revealed. It was hid. These truths were hid. And that's why Paul develops that great theme in the third chapter of Ephesians about God's promise. And of course, that's coming off of Ephesians chapter 2 where he speaks about that both Jew and Gentile, the, the middle wall of partition was broken down, you see. I, I tell you, one of the most th- uh, critical things I have with the New Testament church in our day and age is when we build a church, a local church, based on ethnicity, okay? And we put that ethnic, you know, if, if I, let's say I have the Italian band, okay? Uh, you know, I'm an Italian. And it would be silly for me to say, well, I'm going to start a church and I'm going to put in the name, it's the, it's the uh, Italian Primitive Baptist Church of Bel Air. You see, that would be contrary to the whole understanding of the New Testament. Of what we have. Okay? So anyway, let's get on back to this idea of Nicodemus. And let's just go over three passages real quick that we explored prior to this concerning the new birth. And notice the words in reference to, for God so loved the world. Okay? Let's just pick one. Psalms 22. One of the most... Okay, Nicodemus should have knew this. I know it. And probably... And my guess is he had a lot to think about after the conversation that he had that night with the Lord Jesus. But in the 22nd chapter of Psalms, notice these words. He said, verse 25, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat, be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. For all the ends of the world, here it is, shall remember and turn unto thee, the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And all they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. Notice the phraseology here. The world, the the governor among the nations. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's what he's referring to. This is a great messianic psalm. And notice this, verse 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be what? Born that he hath done this. So this is a key word in understanding how this relates to the new birth. The word born, and in the same context, we see the word world, the nations, and the blessings under the Messiah. If you go to a nationalist Jew today who loves the Old Testament, you have to say, where in your theology, when you study the rule of the Messiah, to what end is that rule? It's the nations. He shall be a light to the Gentiles, you see? It should be almost immediate that the blessings provided under the coming Messiah would include the Gentiles. Okay, let's just look at a couple more. 87 Psalms with just this idea in mind. This is another Psalm that we pointed out. I'll just make mention of this. You know, glorious things of thee are spoken, O city of God, Selah. Well, how is it spoken of? In what way? How is it applied? I will make mention 
of Rahab and Babylon to them that know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. Okay, so another picture of the birth, the new birth in the Old Testament with the application of the world at large. Not just limited, if you will. Um, and this is played out also. Let, let's just turn to uh, Isaiah. We, here's one we haven't mentioned. Let's just turn just for a second to the 45th chapter of Isaiah. Remember the, uh, the word of which I speak concerning the perspective that we have. Very critical. Very critical. Most Baptist churches today don't have this particular perspective. They have a perspective that still awaits a futuristic age in which the righteousness of Christ will be revealed to the entire earth. What are they looking at? They're looking at it with physical aptitude and not spiritual aptitude. And so this recurring theme runs throughout the book of the prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And just look at this for a minute. Well... And here we're in Isaiah 45. He said, I've made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. So this is God speaking. And of course, it's all in reference to Cyrus, who would be a king of, I think, what, Persia, who would be used by God as an instrument to deliver his cho- chosen out of the captivity of Babylon. But Cyrus himself, is just a little picture of one to come who would be the Lord's servant, and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what he says concerning Cyrus first, but ultimately the Christ. Verse 14, the labor of Egypt, the merchandise of Ethiopia and of Sabians, men of stature shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee, in chains they shall come over. And they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. There is no other God, basically. And so what we see is this picture of men coming from the far corners of the earth, recognizing Cyrus for his being used as an instrument of God and delivering his people. But yet, ultimately, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself would lead captivity captive out of their bondage and set them free through the work of the cross. Okay, let's move on. Because, or just mentioned a few things in terms of the Old Testament picture of the blessings of God bestowed upon the Gentiles. I go back to a time in the days of Joshua when the Hivites, if you will, was a, was a large percentage of the neighbors concerning um, here comes Joshua and the band of the Israelites. What a reputation they had. Well, among the Hivites, there was a group of people called the Gibeonites. There was a clan called the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were scared to pieces because here comes the children of Israel. And the word is that he delivered the children of Israel out of the iron furnace and the bondage of Egypt, destroyed Pharaoh and all the hosts in the sea, the Red Sea. And so these guys, their knees were shaken, scared that here comes Israel bringing along their God. We're going to be minced meat. That's what's going to happen to us. And so they, they foiled Joshua and, and the Israelites. And they came to him 
You know, they, the bread was moldy. The shoes were worn. They looked like they traveled thousands of miles. They, oh, no, we're not your neighbors. We're from a far country. And now promise to us that you won't destroy us. And the children of Israel got together and said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. We promise we're not going to destroy you. But sooner than later, old Joshua and the elders of Israel found out that they were, dis- they were fooled, you know. And so what are they going to do? Well, we can't destroy these Gibeonites because we already made an oath to God. We can't destroy them. Well, what are we going to do with them? Well, go get- guess what Joshua did? He made him hewers of wood and water for the temple service. The Gibeonites, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, outside the promises and the oracles of God, were blessed to visualize every day the work of Christ right there in the temple service, Old Testament. Here's my sin, propitiated through that animal sacrifice. The Gibeonites. Oh, well, we have other examples. We can go to examples like the Lord himself. Remember now, he comes on the scene, he preaches in the synagogue. What's he talk about? He talks about Elisha, who went to, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, and who was a leper? Naaman, the captain of the host of who? Syria. And, and what a, what a, well, I'll tell you what. And then he uses another example of a widow woman in the days of Elijah, right? A woman of Sidon in the Phoenician Phoenician coastline, outside the borders of Judea, right? And God blesses her, and God blesses his name in the Syrian, but to nobody in Israel did he do such blessing. Basically, that's what the Lord said in Luke chapter 4. And the people said, the Jews were so filled with wrath and envy. Because what's going on? The Lord is a light to the Gentiles. He's coming in, the reign of the Messiah... And he's preaching the gospel of God's kingdom. He's saying, God so loved the world, you see. And those Jews, well, they were filled with wrath because they're, st- they're still thinking physical. And so we see more and more examples back in the Old Testament. How about Ruth? Ruth, the Moabites, enemies of Israel, right? Guess who, guess who was used in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? A Moabitess by the name of Ruth. And you're talking about love stories. Love stories. There's Boaz who falls in love. Listen, somebody says, yeah, but he did it out of duty because he was the next in line. Oh, no, he, he had a choice. He had a choice to be her redeemer. Her husband died. She was without children. She was not even an Israelite or a Hebrew. He had no um, legal reason to redeem that Gentile. But he did so because he loved her. And that love bore fruit. And that fruit, I think, was the great-grandfather of David. Ultimately, the Lord would come through the line of David. That's why he was called the son of David. And so, you know, the Old Testament is filled with Gentiles who were blessed to be part of the covenant. Just a picture of what was to come. One of the neatest experiences in the Old Testament, one of my favorites, is when old Jeremiah was thrown in the pit by Zedekiah. And there was a contingency of princes that hated Jeremiah. And so they besought Zedekiah to throw 
the prophet Jeremiah into the pit. Why did Jeremiah get thrown in the pit? Because he prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the physical city. And that was an anathema to those kind of people back in that day. You just don't speak against Jeremiah. Well, they threw him in a pit, and that pit was full of mud, muck. And you go into that pit, you're as good as gone. But there was a man that worked in the court, an Ethiopian. And that old boy, Obed-Melech was his name. He went to Zedekiah and said, Look, Jeremiah's going to die if we don't do something. And old Zedekiah, feeling guilty, said, All right, go ahead. And he got 50 people to help him. And they threw down these cords, a bunch of old ropes and tartar you know, clothes. And they tied them together, threw them down in the pit. And he said, Oh, Jeremiah, put these under your armpits. And Jeremiah did it. And they pulled him up to safety. And he lived. He was delivered by an Ethiopian. He was blessed. See, the prophet of God was blessed. Not by his own kind. He was delivered. His own kind was ready to kill him. And so pictures, these pictures are in the Old Testament that Nicodemus would know eventually. That were pictures of how God loved the world, even back in that particular day. Well, let's move on. For God so loved the world. And of course, you know, the world isn't the world as we understand it all all together. You know, when he refers to the world here, he's really talking about his elect children of God out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Because in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, he gives the best definition of the word world that we have in the New Testament. And that's where he mentions that we are chosen out of. There's a kindred chosen out of. That's the best definition of what election means right there in Revelation 5, 9, when we are out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people on the face of the earth. That the election of God, the whole family of God, named not only in heaven and on earth, come out of the entirety of God's masterful plan for His people. An elect family of God, chosen from before the foundation of the world. That promise given to Abraham that in Christ would all the families of the earth be blessed is just an initial revelation dispensed in its degree, in its infant degree, made known to the prophets, you see. But as time goes on, that same promise is reiterated, not only to the patriarchs like Jacob and Isaac, but also David further on, okay. And as these promises are revealed over thousands of years, more information is given. Now, that's what I mean by where we're at today and how greater blessed we are because we can see it all but they didn't know what was going on they knew that this coming one would come forth out of Bethlehem they knew that even Herod's princesses knew that but they didn't have it all together they couldn't understand it all together but they saw little pieces of it over time well it says here for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son And here, and we'll close in the last portion with this phrase, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, the idea of whosoever doesn't suggest that eternal life is an offer to whoever wants it. That's not really what is being conveyed here. 
that whosoever reiterates what we just said, that the gospel now has gone forth to whosoever, to kings, to servants, to male, to female, to bond, to free. All who are in Christ Jesus are one new man. We're all children of God in Christ. We all love God's people without distinction. We pray for God's people without favoritism. One of the greatest admonitions and warnings against ordaining men in the New Testament is that they show no partiality. No partiality. I can tell you that where the majority... No, I won't say the majority. I'd say a lot of problems that arise in churches over the years. If you look historically, you can point to that lack of admonition that they respected people, right? And who they were. In other words, the messenger was more important than the message. Always remember, the message is predominant in the household of faith. The truth is predominant. Not who brings it. You can get any old monkey, blessed of God, to preach the gospel. Don't matter who you are. Servants of God are are dispensable. One dies, another one takes up the, the, the baton and carries on bearing faithful testimony to the truth of God in his generation. Well, to understand whosoever believeth is very simple. Because, you know, well, what does the word believe mean? What does it mean? What are we saying here? And I believe what it has something to, in reference to, and we're really beyond my time, so I'm going to move very quickly. Just three things when I think about the word believe. I think about truth. That we believe in truth, not fiction. Not a story tale, not something somebody told me, not traditions passed down from somebody else that I like. You know, picture of this old guy. No, truth. Truth, as the scriptures teach it. I am the way and the truth, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the gospel was given so that we may know these things, right? This is the record, that we may know what? That we have eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So the gospel record gives us the information about God's love. And thereby, this whole idea that he's talking about here is not how to get salvation or even how to be born again, but have the assurance of it, the assurance of salvation by believing in him. And of course, that comes off that pivotal point of being pricked, if you will, or being poisoned, if you will, by the serpent, if you will, the fiery serpent of God's Holy Spirit. And we feel the remission of sins through the belief of the gospel. You see, that's what happened in uh, Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. What did he receive when he believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says that he received the remission of his sins. You see, he, in other words, he received the atonement with joy and great satisfaction. He believed that Christ took away his sin, you see. Up to that point, what was he? He was like everybody else born of God. He was accepted of God, right? He gave alms. He was a devout man and a just man because he was blessed by God's Spirit. But until he believed the gospel, he had no idea what it meant to be delivered from that affliction that was in his soul. Now, moving on. It's truth and it's trust. Believing 
is truth. I've got to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he said about himself. And trust it for myself. See, it's one thing to say, yeah, I, I believe in what they believe. I believe what that church stands for. I believe that. No, no. When you believe, it's something you take within your own bosom. I can't do it for you. And then lastly, it's a treasure. Belief is not only truth, trust, but treasure. Because it's for me. And I'm going to treasure it more than anything in my entire life. It's more important to me than anything or anyone. That's how important it is. And the fact that it says believeth, the translators are trying to tell you something. That is, and it's an ongoing, active tense, if you will. It's something that you can't say, well, I believed you know, 30 years ago, but I don't now. That's not believing Christ. I don't know what that is. That's giving up on the Lord. But we believe it. We continue on in that active, ongoing sense. Now, what's the promises? I'll just leave you with this thought. The promise that we have is understanding and coming into the knowledge that we have not just life eternal in the future, but have it right now. We have life now. We have eternal life now. I want you to think about that. The next time you're worrying about your retirement and you're, you know, you're thinking about, well, what did I lay up for my retirement? I mean, I'm just using an example. How about health? Somebody may not be in really good health and you're, you're, you're dismayed that your whole life is, ba- is now coming down to this point where you can't even get out of bed. Right? How do you look at that? I'm going to tell you how I look at my situation. I look at my life as an aspect that it's eternal. And that, you know, what I'm going through as I get nearer to the edge, that river that we must pass over, right? That one, that, um, the day in which we lay aside the robe of this tabernacle, it, it, has, no, it has no bearing on us. Because our life is not ended. Our life continues on. But to understand that we have that now is a great blessing. That's why when, I think it was when Jesus said to Martha, Do you, you know, you believe in me? I say, I, yeah, I believe that thou art the Son of God. What did he say? He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In other words, what he's saying to every born-again child of God, you're never going to die. You're never going to die. Now, your body's going to give way. And you're going to have to lay that body down. But you will never die. Because why? You have eternal life. That's what he's saying right there. May the Lord bless you today.